Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you guys. And take your copy of God's Word and join me in the book of Leviticus, the very first chapter. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Exodus is number two. Leviticus is number three. If you're not sure how to find your way around, that's how you can do it. Or you can just access it on your app if you're using a phone or a tablet. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, there have been a couple of times in my young life where I was actually uh, faced with the temptation to smoke pot. That may surprise you, uh, but I was. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, I've never had that particular urge. I've got my own darknesses, and my heart's just as sinful as anybody else's in the room. And so I have my own temptations. That just didn't happen to be one of them. I never, it, that sweet smell never particularly appealed to me. Uh, and then when I saw the way some of my goofy friends would become even more goofy after partaking, I thought, yeah, I really just don't want anything to do with that. But there was one episode in which I was very close to actually trying it. Uh, and I want to share that story with you today just by way of introduction. And, and I was with, um, how many of you have ever seen that movie, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and there was a guy in there, Sean Penn played, named Jeff Spicoli? Anybody? All right, a lot of Spicoli fans around the room. If your hand didn't go up and you don't know who Spicoli is, let me tell you, Spicoli is not a myth. He is real. And the way I know that is because he went to my high school. I went to high school with this guy, and I won't tell you his real name. We'll just call him Jeff, all right? And I was hanging out with Jeff one night at a mutual friend's house, just a bunch of dudes, 16, 17, 18 years old, doing all kinds of stupid stuff, because that's what dudes do when they're at that age group, and you get them together in large numbers with no real accountability, right? And so we're hanging out at a mutual friend's house, and that was the night that I was introduced to something, a, a real work of art, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Anybody know this one? Yeah, oh, wow. All right, yeah, all you Gen Xers, I see you out there. Okay, so this was my first, this was my first exposure, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. All I could see was a bunch of disjointed themes and pictures, freaky puppets and cartoons and cruel teachers and disfigured faces and kids being run through a meat grinder and, and just, just crazy, the burning cities, strange lyrics, and I thought, what in the world is any of this supposed to mean? This doesn't make any sense. And that's when my buddy Jeff looked at me and said, Joel, dude, you can't understand this movie unless you're high. So, by God's grace, common sense got the better of me, and I said no. And I found a better way later on to kind of understand what in the world is going on with this movie. I actually read the historical background, and I discovered that The Wall is an album of a fictitious man's life, a man by the name of Pink, and he's the main protagonist of the film and of the music and of the album itself. And Pink grows up in World War II era England. And he is expressing all of his grief and all of his sadness and the torment in his soul, beginning with 300,000 plus British soldiers that were killed in World War II, among whom was his own father. So Pink is a guy who lost his dad, grew up with a very domineering mother, went into a school system that he interpreted as only really interested in, in whittling him down and making him a cog in society's wheel, under the control of a British government that he saw as merely using citizenry for as chess pieces on a chessboard. And then, of course, on top of all that was his own dysfunction, his marital breakdown, his dependence on drugs, uh, his failed attempts at art. And all of these things together developed the life of this man named Pink. And then he, he figured out some way, and this is actually where the lyrics all start to coalesce and make sense, he figured out a way to take all those negative experiences and use them to build a wall between himself 
And the very autocratic, very not interested in developing him as a human being, very, very overt, very, very authoritarian, very painful kind of world. So all those, all those negative experiences, rather than trying to be wounded by them, he said, I'm going to take them and I'm going to use them as bricks. So if you became a problem for pink, all in all, you were just another. See, I knew you guys listen to this stuff too, right? And all of a sudden I read this and it made sense to me. Sober. I I didn't even have to take any substances to figure this out. I just needed to know the background. The wall was not to be taken literally. It's a, it's what artists call a concept album. It uses various kinds of things that on the surface seem to be very disconnected, but they really are connected by a much larger purpose that lies behind the scene. Now, why do I tell you that story from my misspent youth? I do that because at some point, uh, many of you made a pledge this year. Back in January, it may have even coincided with a a New Year's resolution. You said, I'm going to read through the entire Bible. I'm going to go from Genesis to Revelation, uh, and and I'm going to do it in the whole year. And you are at the point, if you're not there yet, in a few weeks you will be, where you're going to think about quitting because you're going to get to Leviticus. And eight to nine chapters in, if you don't know what you're doing or what you're reading, it's going to feel like you're trying to watch a Pink Floyd video sober. And that's not what we want, right? We want you to get what's going on here. What's happening with this book? What's the background? And and more importantly, what's the larger story? Because the thing about Leviticus, it isn't just that it's strange, you know, with, with, with Pink Floyd's The Wall, it was, it was weird disfigured faces and hamburger grinders and burning cities. With, with Leviticus, it's dead animals and tents and, and, and furniture that has to be put in certain places and certain kinds of material that you can't wear at the same time and crops you can't plant side by side. And you can actually kill somebody for doing something as simple as sassing their mom and dad. I mean, it was just crazy. And you look at this and you're so, we are 3,500 years and about 7,000 miles removed from that culture. And then on top of that, Leviticus almost, at least on the surface, kind of like the wall, seems like an interruption in the storyline. So we get to the end of Exodus, and we, we've got this powerful story of everything God's done. And then all of a sudden, it's this book that looks like the, the penal code for some state somewhere. So it doesn't look like, at least on the surface, it belongs anywhere. It actually belongs as a very powerful, informing place within the larger story. And if you've joined us for the first time this year, uh, having come into the building right now, you've joined us in the middle of a series. Uh, This message is contained within a series called The Story, where we're moving through the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We're going to try to get through the end of the book by around the middle of June, which obviously means we're going to be flying at an incredible rate of speed, very high altitude. But in the process, we want to give you some handles to understand the larger storyline of Scripture. So beginning this morning, let's recap and let's talk a little bit about that story. We've already seen that there's one God who created all things for His glory and for His purpose. He created our parents, Adam and Eve, and He placed them in a garden to cultivate it, to keep it, to live out their purpose for Him and to enjoy fellowship with Him for all eternity. We also learned there that our first parents rebelled against God in the garden, that as a result, every other person, including you and I, grows up, was born into and grows up in a world that exists outside that garden, outside of fellowship with God. But God said, I'm not going to leave it this way. I'm going to send somebody to fix this. As early as Genesis 3.15, he says, I'm going to initiate warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, our enemy Satan, who had tempted our first parents and brought them to the place where they freely chose to rebel. And so the rest of the story of the Bible is about this seed. Everything is about this seed. Everything is about God promising to send that Messiah who's going to fix everything. 
Many, many generations after that occurrence in the garden, he starts to initiate that in human history, and he does that through a man named Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, among other things. And he does that through Abraham having a son named Isaac, Isaac then having a son named Jacob, and Jacob in turn uh, having, becoming the father of the twelve men, twelve boys who will rise up to become the fathers of the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. And as Israel grows in population, finds herself in the midst of a famine, finds refuge in Egypt, and then subsequently finds herself in slavery in Egypt. That's when God has to raise up another man by the name of Moses who goes into Egypt, who through the plagues and the system of the Passover, God delivers under the leadership of Moses the Israelites out of slavery. And as we saw last week, for the first time in a, after 400 years of slavery, for the first time in 400 years, they walk out of Egypt finally a free people again with a large population. And they're headed toward the land that God had promised them. And that's when Moses gives them the Ten Commandments, something that we looked at last week. A summary of the code that we're going to look at this week that basically says to them, this is how free people live. This is how free people live. And it's within that context of history that we find the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus occurs within this period of history. So, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to outline the book for you, kind of give you a sense of its contents, and connect it to the larger meaning of what God wanted to teach his people. Then we're going to look briefly at the book of Numbers to see how the Israelites themselves were unable to fulfill this law. And then we'll conclude with Deuteronomy, which is essentially a restatement of the law. So when we talk about Deuteronomy, we're talking about literally a second law. Deuteros is the the Greek term for second. Namas is the word for law. You put them together, you get the book of Deuteronomy, which is the title the Greeks gave this book because Moses is restating the law, applying it afresh for life in the promised land as opposed to life in the wilderness. So that's where we're going to go today. And through all three of these books, one of the things that we're going to see is the same thing the Israelites saw. What is it that we can learn about God, learn about ourselves, learn about the nature of our souls, and learn about how God has has acted in redemptive history to bring about our salvation? So we'll start with Leviticus. And the primary emphasis of this book is holiness. It's holiness. You take a look, very first two verses, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. We'll get to what that tent of meeting was in just a moment. Saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So this is a, basically an, an instruction of sacrifice. Now, sacrifices are not new. Okay, we saw them in the story of the Bible as early as the story of Cain and Abel. We saw it again with Noah. We know by looking at ancient Near History that multiple civilizations by this point in history are participating in sacrifice. And so what God is doing here is He's taking something, He's taking cultural practice that these people are intimately and inherently familiar with and, and, and has been commanded of them before. And he's bringing greater order to that system that they're already familiar with in order to teach them something about himself. And all of this happens in the context of something called the tabernacle. If you take a look at Exodus 25, you can see that God had instructed his people beforehand, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture 
so you shall make it. Now, there's an outline I've provided for you here of the tabernacle so you can take a look. You see the arrow over to the right-hand side entering in, and you'll notice there's one door. That's intentional. There's an intentionality behind that. And the first thing you see is the altar of burnt offering. And we're going to be kind of un- unpacking what all of this means as we move through the text together. Beyond that is a bronze laver where there was water and there was ceremonial cleansing that would take place on a daily basis. When you see the gold barrier around on the inside there, that's actually the what's called the holy place. And as you step inside that, to your left, you're going to see what our Jewish cousins in the faith call the menorah or the lampstand. And to the right, you're going to find the showbread or what we would call the bread of presence. Then the altar of incense just beyond that. Before you step through that curtain, actually that's not something you want to do. You'll get killed doing that. But we'll come back to that later. And when you step into that curtain, you'll find the Ark of the Covenant and what is called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. This is where once a year the high priest of Israel would go in and he would make a blood sacrifice on behalf of all who are able by God's grace to find themselves within this community of faith. And that's how the, the Hebrew cult was set up. Now, uh, let's see how all that applies today by looking at the next slide. Because the 8th the chapter of Hebrews in our New Testament tells us that all of these things serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. So when you step into that first uh, line there, it just inside that outer court, the altar of burnt offering is to remind you and me uh, and, and the Israelites as well that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You want to be a member of this community? Somebody has to die because you're a sinner. And if you're not going to do it, there needs to be a lamb, some sort of animal that needs to die in your place, even for you to be admitted into the community of faith. Beyond that is that labor, which represented daily cleansing, what we would call a, a dying to self, a crucifying of sin that has to happen daily on our part. Beyond that, in the, the holy place, the lampstand on your uh, left would be what the priest would use to prepare the sacrifice before going into the Holy of Holies. So they used it as a very practical light source, but that light had to go on and on and on. It could never be extinguished. And when the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is the lampstand that he's initially referring to. He's speaking of that, that lampstand and what that lampstand means, that it is the Word of God. It's God revealing Himself to us that eliminates our minds and frees our spirits to serve Him in every way. And then as you're looking at the lampstand, if you're just making a about face, you'll see the, the bread of presence there. That was to remind the Israelites, particularly in the wilderness, of God's provision. And the fact that their provision for life, for death, it came exclusively from their God. Don't worship other gods. Don't count on political savvy. Don't count on alliances with other nations. This is a major, major faux pas that the Israelites get into later in their history. Don't count on any of those things. You will look to your God and to your God alone. And then, in the most holy place, what we see there uh, illustrated for us is the necessity of a substitutionary sacrifice that is made by an ultimate high priest. The high priest of Israel, once a year, goes in. He makes a blood sacrifice on behalf of all of God's people. And all of that was so full of meaning, and it was intended to be an instrument for God to reveal himself to his people. So the very architecture and the makeup of the tabernacle was given to the Israelites so that they would understand what they needed to know at that period in history about their God and about them. 
That's why the tabernacle was given. And then the Levitical code that we're about to give in, get into was given complementary to that tabernacle process to as a manual for how the Israelites were to worship God. God has revealed Himself to you in the tabernacle. You know everything about His holiness, everything about His justice, everything about forgiveness that you need to know at this particular time and place, and every piece of furniture and every stake pole, everything in this building has meaning. God has revealed Himself to you through it. Leviticus then answers this question, how should you respond to God as He has revealed Himself to you? That's the meaning. And so as we get into this, we start to see that. We start to, we start to see this. How are you to worship God? So in Exodus, the tabernacle, this is where you worship Him, at least at this period in history. Leviticus, how do you do it? How do you do it? That begins with Leviticus Chapter 1. And you have a system for the forgiveness of sins that's found in these first seven chapters. Beginning with a burnt offering, which was an offering that was consumed completely and wholly on the altar. And it was for offenses against God for sin. And it could be an animal that was different depending on your financial ability. Offered and totally consumed. Then you had the offering of grain, the grain offering. And this really often would, oftentimes would, would accompany the burnt offering, and it usually was for those <clears throat> with little means. And so no matter where you were on the economic status pole in ancient Israel, you had an opportunity as well to make an offering to God and to have your sins forgiven and to contribute to the larger faith community. We talked a little bit about giving here last week, and that's one of the principles that we brought up is that God never asks you for what you don't have. Okay, so when you see some of these cartoon characters on television asking you to send them their mortgage payment, your mortgage payment, asking you to write a check that the money's not there in your account and calling that faith, that's not faith. That's foolishness propelled by a huckster who's getting rich off of people who don't know any better. He is after your money, not after developing your soul. And the New Testament epistles warn us about such false prophets, tell us that they will go to hell and that you and I will join them there if we follow them. And one of the key ingredients of understanding, key evidences of understanding, is that they're all about the money. And God never one single time in the Bible tells His people to give Him something that they don't already have, or that they're not relatively sure that they're going to be able to get. And we see that evidenced here in the grain offering as well. If you're lower on the economic pole, God doesn't say to you as a member of the house of Israel, well, you better in faith go buy some bull on credit and bring that sucker to me. That's not what He says. What He does say is, everything you do have belongs to me. Everything. Okay? And so... When we bring that forward into the new covenant, we think about a church community and giving. That's our philosophy here. Everything you have belongs to Jesus. Whether you're worth four figures, five figures, six figures, seven figures, eight figures, it doesn't matter. It all belongs to God. And your responsibility before God is to give regularly and sacrificially if you're a part of the covenant community as you are able. But God never asks you for what you don't have. That's illustrated in the grain offering. Then the peace offering. The peace offering is for offenses, many times paired with a burnt offering, and it was consumed not just by God, at least through the, the sacrifice being offered up, but also by the faith community. This is how we live with one another. We don't just have, we're not just one with God, we're one with each other. Then the sin offering for offenses against God, the guilt offering for particular violations of the Mosaic Covenant. 
In other words, there are moral laws that should never, ever, ever be broken. Then there are ceremonial laws that are not inherently sinful if they're not obeyed. Jesus broke multitudes of ceremonial law when he came. But at this period in time, those ceremonial laws, those procedures, those processes were intended to illustrate for God's people what this moral law intended for them in terms of how they were supposed to live. So if you break this at this time period, you make this unclear, which means this now has to be atoned for as well. And so that is where the guilt offering, all of this has one singular big idea, and it's found in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 35. And the priest shall make atonement for him, for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Look again at at chapter 5, verse 18. The priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and it shall be forgiven. What's the big idea? God forgives. We serve a God who no matter what you have done or where you come from or who you are, offers you free and full pardon. It's in His nature to forgive. And that's what we find here in Leviticus. God forgives sin. And this section of the book is intended to teach them by example through their own cultural practices how that forgiveness happens. And so you have this this forgiveness, this system of forgiveness of sin. Secondly, Leviticus chapter 8 through 10. You have this discussion of the priesthood. So, 1 through 7 are the sacrificial system. How do I get my sins forgiven? 8 through 10 are the priesthood, the one who administers, the ones whose role it is, at least within this covenant, to mediate that sacrifice. God sets Moses and Aaron apart, and Aaron's sons, as priests. And under that covenant, these men serve as mediators between God and men, and they foreshadow one who will ultimately come and fulfill that role perfectly, thereby rendering no more need for any other priesthood. And we read in 1 Timothy 2.15, there is one God and there is one mediator. So by the time we get to our age, there are not mediators with an S, plural. There is a mediator and there is only one. And Paul says it is the man Christ Jesus. Later on in Hebrews 8.6, the author there says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Everything we're reading now is intended to point us to the better thing and to the ultimate mediator. Some of you come from backgrounds where you have priests that you've always kind of appealed to throughout your life, depending on what religious denomination or what faith you came out of. And that's a, it's a little weird to you because you come here and, and we don't have priests. Actually, we do, but we just have one. And it ain't me. It's not me. We have pastors, elders, deacons, small group leaders. We have people who can facilitate uh, worship, people who can counsel you, people who can help you, but you only have one mediator. We don't have a priesthood here because we at Covenant don't believe there is such a thing as a priesthood anymore. It was gone. It is not coming back. And it doesn't need to come back because you don't need somebody with a white collar. You don't need somebody putting a wafer in your mouth to commune with God. You can go to Him All on your own, but you only get there one way, and that is through the mediator, the one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. That's what we believe here at Covenant. No more need for, hey, and I've had people come up to me, are you the priest? No, not really. I I really don't want that job because I'd be invading on the territory of a guy who could take me out pretty quick. Right? So I don't want that job. I don't want that job at all. And sometimes, well, you're the guy with the answers. No, I'm really not. I'm the guy who points you to the guy with the answers. That's what I do. 
Okay? And so when we talk about the priesthood, it's important to understand that in the context that you and I live now, as it was given in the Mosaic Covenant, it was given even then only to foreshadow what Jesus came and eventually did. There's only one high priest. And everything we read here points to him and the new covenant over which he presides and into which he invites the world. All of that is foreshadowed right here in Leviticus. All right? And then the third section, you got 8 through 10 that deal with the priesthood, 1 through 7 that deal with the system to illustrate forgiveness, the sacrificial system. And then 11 to 26, the thickest part, is the holiness code. There is a reason that there are attorneys present in our society. And it is because, it's not just because we want to be protected by the law, it's also because we don't want to do all that work ourselves. Right? I don't want to read that stuff. I'm not interested in all that. I want to pay somebody who's got a background in it, who understands it, that I can trust, who can... And and so when you get into this part of Leviticus, it gets very tedious, because all it is is a bunch of case law. That's all it is. But still incredibly important. Still no less divinely inspired case law. Because it applied to the ancient culture. How should this community, living in this period, in this time, expect to deal with the things that hit them in life? Everything from the birth of a child, to a theft, to sexual sin of various sorts, to festivals and celebrations, dietary restrictions. How do you resolve interpersonal conflict? All those things. Now, because this is not just a civil society when we talk about Israel, it's also a faith community. It doesn't, it's not just case law that addresses civil issues. It also addresses issues of holiness. It addresses issues of sin. And it instructs God's people through this theocratic principle. This is how you are to govern the people so that you can have an orderly society and an orderly faith community. This is how you get that done. Now, you've got to remember, this is not an everlasting covenant. So as you read through this, keep in mind, the particular commands were given to Israel and not necessarily to you or to me. Okay, I'll give you an example of one. Chapter 20, verse 9. Anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Anybody got a teenager in the house? Yeah, you can't do that. All right, And not just because it's against the law. You can't do that. All right, You just can't do it. Uh, this was given to the Israelites at this time and in this place. And it, it, was, it is within the bounds of a covenant that was fulfilled fully and finally in the person of Jesus. So as much as you would love to just take them out of the world just as quickly as you brought them in, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, that can't happen. Now, if you're a teen and you're listening, here's what you need to understand from the other side. You should never be afraid that your mom and dad might do something like this, but you should consider that at one point, at one time, in one place, among one people, God actually said this would be appropriate punishment for showing disrespect to your mom and your dad. So don't be afraid of your parents. But when it comes to what you will do and not do in respect to your parents, you had better fear God. Fear God. And this is how we separate the specific commands which were given to Israel within one covenant with the principles, the broader principles that are taught to us in Leviticus of things that we should always do. You should still honor your father and mother. You should respect them. As long as you're living under their roof, eating their food, driving their automobiles, you do what they say. It's really simple. And to the extent that you fail to do that, You do that with the watching eyes of a creator who at one point in history said, parents, it's okay to kill your kids if they do that to you. That's how seriously God takes this issue. So just keep that in mind. Okay? 
Here's the big idea. I want my people to live differently than anybody around them. That, that's, that's what this code tells us. I want my people to be different. Right? When there's danger, I want them running toward it, not away from it. When there's an issue of holiness that's on the line, I want them to draw the line and stand behind it and refuse to dishonor me as their Lord. I want my people to be marked. I want my people to be different. That's the big idea. The pagan cultures all around them can do whatever they want. My people will obey my law. And to do that, they need to know me. They need to fellowship with me. That's the whole principle of Leviticus. But by the time we get to the next book of the Bible, we, we begin to understand very quickly. They're incapable of it. They can't do it. They can't live differently. And it's not just that they're incapable, it is that they are unwilling. And we see this most clearly in the book of Numbers. Now the original title for Numbers was In the Wilderness. That was, what it, that was the original title given it by Moses. Because the main theme of the book tells the story of God's people wandering in the Sinai wilderness for four decades, and it also gives us an explanation for why they wandered. Chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. You're going to go in. There's pagan people there. I've given that land to you. You're going to go in. You're going to kill them. You're going to take the land because I promised it to you. That, that's it. These are your marching orders. But somewhere along the line, those spies that went over lost sight of their purpose and the task that was before them. Somewhere along the line, they forgot that they were actually there to scope out their land and make a battle plan. And they began to think themselves a committee designed to vote on whether or not to do what God had told them to do. And so by the time we get to verse 28, the people who dwell in that land are strong and the cities are fortified very large. We can't do this. All but two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say this. And so the result is that God says, How long will this people despise me? Did you know? Think about this for a minute, just as an aside. They say no to God because they're afraid. And yet, God still punishes them. Which tells us that fear is no excuse. No excuse. Did you know among the sexually immoral and the idolatrous and all of those in Revelation 20 that are described as inheriting their part in the lake of fire, embedded within that is a group called the fearful, the timid? Not because they have fear, but because they allow their fear to paralyze them. And the result is, God says, they despise me. They don't trust me. And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to their fathers. I'm done with these people. And none of those who despise me shall see it. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to keep my promise. I've said, my people Israel are going to inherit this land. I'm going to give them the land. But here's the deal. I am sick of this generation. Your kids will see it, but you will die before we get there. That's your punishment. Because you are incapable and unwilling of following my word. You can't do it. And that 40 years is just long enough. 
after the law code, after the tabernacle, after everything I have done, not just to to bring you out of Egypt and into the freedom of the gospel, but to bring you into this land and to reveal myself to you and to make you a people different who stand out above all the other nations, even though you started as one of the most insignificant and you still despise me, I will make you stay here. Just long enough for every single person who came out of Egypt, except for two, to die. They saw everything I did, yet they still refused to believe me. And Forty years later, an entire generation has died in the desert, except for Joshua and for Caleb. And we find them in the plains of Moab, just opposite the Jordan River. Just opposite the river from the, the land that God had promised them. And Moses, before his own death, renews the covenant with them. And we find that in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy contains three addresses because Moses is about to depart as well. Back in Numbers chapter 20, we read where Moses had had his own fit of rage, had rebelled against God. And so God says now, even to Moses, you too are banned from the promised land. You will not make it. I will bury you in the plains of Moab before your people cross. I will give the mantle of leadership to Joshua. You are forbidden to enter. And so Moses, knowing that he's going to die, now stands before his people. This is his last opportunity. I got to tell you, every time I read this, every time I read this particular portion of scripture as a pastor, it makes me, I get emotional. What would I do? What would have happened if God had showed up last night and he said, Rainey, this is it. You're dying on Monday morning. You die Monday morning. Tomorrow morning. Those are the last two chances you have to stand in front of God's people. What on earth do you say? What do you say? And what Moses does is he takes the entire law that we just covered in in Leviticus and he reapplies it to where they're going to be living. See, they're they're not going to be living in the wilderness anymore. Now they're in the promised land. This is the same law, but it will be applied differently under these circumstances than it was under the old circumstances. And 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 Moses. Moses wants his people to flourish, and he knows that the law and the will of the revealed will of God is the only way they're going to get that done. And so that's what he does. My last chance. I'm going to die after this. What, what do I do? What do I say to my people? Because anybody with any kind of pastoral heart loves the people that God has given them. He wants to see them flourish. He wants to see them thrive. He wants to see their families healthy. He wants to see their kids grow up and be healthy. He wants to see all that and it breaks his heart every single time one of them walks away or runs or shakes their fist in the face of God because he knows what the end is going to be for them. And Moses doesn't want that for his people. He doesn't want that. And so he restates what he believes with all of his heart is something they need to follow. The flourishing of his people depends upon their faithfulness to God. So right before he dies, he doesn't preach one sermon. He preaches three. So if you think my messages are long, wow. Okay, And if I ever come in here and say, I think I might die soon, just bring your lunch. Okay? I mean, it's just, this is that moment. This is the last time I'm ever going to speak. Three addresses. The first one, the first one, he recounts the history of the last 40 years. God's been faithful to you. God has blessed you. God has sustained you. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord's your God. You back up with that other one. Did did I put it in there, the first address? Back up two more slides. 
Yeah, for the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you have lacked nothing. Don't forget who you serve. He is faithful. He has always been faithful. He has never broken a promise. When it seems as dark as it can seem, you keep your hands outstretched. You continue to worship Him and you be faithful to Him because He has always been and will always be faithful to you. Always. That's the first address. Look what God has done. And remember that He never changes. The second address is a restatement of the Levitical Code. Don't forget. Reapplied to the situation that they now face. Okay, This is how you live in community with one another. right? It would be like me. What happens if I do something stupid and one of my neighbor's dogs dies right? There, as a result of that? Well, there's, I'm sure here in Shepherdstown there's a code for that. right? There's a law. There, there's zoning laws. There's, there's codes on what you can and cannot do. right? Like I, I can't, I'm in an HOA that doesn't allow me to raise chickens or, or fire my gun on my property. Right, except in the case of self-defense. So, so there's laws like that where Moses is unpacking and unfolding again and saying, once you get to the promised land, this is how you need to apply that case law to live together in the best way. And then the third address are final promises of blessing and cursing as they relate to covenant faithfulness and a charge to be faithful, including the commissioning of his successor Joshua. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous. For you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give to them. I will be with you. I will be with you. Covenant faithfulness. And to understand that, to understand all of this really, we need to get a sense of the purpose of this law. Why was it given? Why was it given? Look at what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3. He says, so then the law was our guardian... Now, some of you may have a translation that says schoolmaster. And, and truthfully, the, the best analogy would be like an elementary school teacher. Not, not 11th grade, second grade. Okay? That's the purpose of the law. It's kind of to be our second or third grade teacher. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay? Teacher. Elementary school teacher. It was there to teach us something. Every time you read Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it is there to teach you something. What's it there to teach me? Well, today we just surveyed at a 10,000 foot view the whole of the Mosaic Law. Last week we looked at the Ten Commandments. In summary, that's the Cliff's Notes version, right? But what if we could boil all this down? Remember what Jesus said about the law? The heart and soul of it is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So let's boil all this down again into a tweet. Five words, 29 characters. Love God, love your neighbor. Okay? Don't forget why this was given. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were given so that God's people at that time period would love God and love their neighbor. Here's what we know as a result, particularly of what we read in Numbers. They didn't do it because they were incapable of doing it. They couldn't do it. Numbers reminds us that we don't do it either because we can't. We refuse to do it. Do we? I mean, love God, love your neighbor. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Look around Look around our society today, though. Look at how we treat our neighbor. You have a problem with your neighbor, you're, more, you're less likely to go next door and talk to your neighbor than you are to pick up the phone and call your lawyer. That's the kind of society we live in. 
Look at the shipwrecked marriages. Look at the abused and neglected children. Look at the violence. Look at the political polarization in our culture. Look at the lack of community and subdivisions of neighbors who only have their HOA in common. Look at a society that is too busy to help a stranger. No room for the needy. No defense for the unborn. No compassion for the refugee. Selfishness. Protectionism. What's in it for me is everywhere. And it cries out with much more clarity, I think, in our own culture than it ever did in Israel. We do not love our neighbor. And why do we not love our neighbor? Why? Look deeper still and we'll find out. Look at the way our society uses God's name in vain and defines Him loosely, even within the body of Christ, being more concerned of offending others than we are of offending our God. Look at our neglect of His law and of His word. Look at how we have redefined morality, sexuality, marriage, generosity, ethics. Look at the open rebellion against His commands and it becomes clear. We do not love God. We do not love God. We do not love our neighbor. And Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy expose that. Not just in the Israelites, but in you and me. The law was given to reveal our impotence and unwillingness to simply love our Creator and love each other. Which is why the law is powerless to save me. I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. The only thing the law of Moses can do, just like my second grade teacher is point out some elementary facts, like reminding me that I am a sinner, reminding me that I only have one hope. And that hope, where is that? It's in the seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That promise is Israel's only hope. That promise is your only hope. It is my hope. Only hope. It is not in Israel. It is not in the law. It is not in the tabernacle. It is in an ultimate Israelite who will come into this world through a virgin's womb, who will live in perfect obedience to God's law and die in our place so that we can be transformed into a people who can truly, by His grace, love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, who by God's grace can love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's what we see consistently in the larger story of the Bible. See, from this point forward, that's all that it's about. It's just an issue of that's not good enough. The law can't save. We need the law giver. The period of the judges can't do anything for God's people. We need a more righteous judge. The kings, the political situations in which the Israelites find themselves cannot save them. They need a better king. They need an ultimate prophet. They need, and you and I need, a Messiah. A Messiah. And we finally see it when we get to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, You are good and You are righteous and You are holy. And You do forgive sins and we thank You for that. You give us Your law not just to tell us what You expect of us, but to teach us that in and of ourselves and apart from Your grace, we are impotent to obey it. We need new hearts. We need, a new, we need the ultimate prophet to tell us the truth in Christ, to embody that truth in his very existence. We need uh, an ultimate priest to mediate for us in a way that no human mediator could ever do. We need a righteous judge who has completely obeyed the law to come and to live and to die for us and to be raised from death and to offer us the only hope of eternal life that anybody in this world ever has. And Lord, I pray that people here this morning would grasp that with all of their heart and all their soul. I ask it in His name. Amen.